Our Heavenly Father, indeed, we do pray that you would send Jesus back soon. And as we await his return, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit that you speak to us in your word and pray that we'd understand more about what is to come as we await patiently and trusting in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I saw a church sign that said something like, Jesus bringing well-being since 32 AD, and which I thought was a clever kind of sign. Although I couldn't help but thinking it, it was kind of missed the point a little bit, at least. Uh, if Jesus came to bring well-being, then it means that our big problem is unwellness or unhappiness or unfulfillment. But there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? After all, we heard last week from Ephesians that once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. And then a little bit later on, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were, there it is again, dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you've been saved. God raised Christ from the dead to fix our death, which is a lot more than just well-being, of course. Although I do really applaud that church for trying to get people thinking about Jesus. But it also struck me that I wonder if the notion behind that sign misses the mark for another reason. And that is, I don't know how much people are thinking about well-being these days. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe they do if they've paid off their mortgage and if they've got good health, in which case they are thinking about well-being and fulfilment and their Instagram profile. But in many ways, well-being is just so 2019 because we're worried about inflation and COVID and Ukraine and what else would you add on that list? And then there are all the things that are particularly a concern to you, yourself. Your own health. The health of someone you love dearly. Relationships that are damaged. Financial stress. What would you add to that list? We don't need well-being, really, do we? We need resurrection. The world's problem isn't unfulfillment. It's surviving God's righteous anger. We need someone who will save us from our sins. And for the majority of us here in this room who've been saved and forgiven by Jesus our Lord, we need today to see him afresh as our super saviour to the rescue who takes our sins away. And as followers of Jesus, we need a fresh reminder that God remains in control even in the dark and the painful times of our own lives. God is on his throne and he really rules everything. And this alone should give us hope through our highs and through our lows. Today we begin the second half of our sermon series on the book of Daniel. It's been seven weeks, I think six weeks, since we last had a look at Daniel. And today we're looking at Daniel chapter 7. 
Uh, it's one of the more famous books of the Old Testament. It has a really key part in understanding the New Testament. I'm so pleased you're here to hear it with me together. And it takes the form of a weird and a scary dream. Now, not just any dream, but it's a dream with a special meaning. Uh, prior to this, in the chapters before, the six chapters before, we've seen a number of different dreams. Chapter 2 saw King Nebuchadnezzar have a dream about a, a giant statue of gold and silver and iron and bronze and clay and then this huge big rock that came and smashed it all up. And then two chapters later, King Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about a huge tree that was eventually cut down and everything that happened with that and his humiliation and all those things. Both of those dreams were about the future. And both of them showed how God controlled the future. Today we're going to see another dream, but this time it's Daniel himself who's dreaming it. And like the other two dreams, it's all on about how God rules really. God remains in control. Now I've got to realise that in all of this, Daniel was in really difficult times. For him, you know, think about there was the time of the lion's den and the fiery furnace. But more than that, they had been living in Jerusalem, in the land of God, in the place where the temple was, where God's, God's presence was experienced. And then the bad guys came in and smashed it all up and killed most of the people and took a handful of them away, of whom Daniel was one. And he's been forced to have a new language and a new culture and a whole new world. And it has been really, really tough for him. He is living in difficult times. And our opening verse in chapter 7 helps locate the action on the timeline. It says, verse 1, Earlier during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and he saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream and this is what he saw. It says that his dream was during the first year of King Belshazzar. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that chapter 5, at the very end, sees the death of King Belshazzar. So that was chapter 5, and then there's been chapter 6, and now we're in chapter 7, and you say, hang on a second, did the person writing down the history of Daniel sort of have it in a book and then it fell on the floor and they just put it up in the different orders? No. But... It is true that the book of Daniel is not all in chronological sequence. And so this particular dream that we're going to see it is actually somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, because King Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually acknowledged that God was the true God, he's died. Then King Belshazzar's come on in. And it seems that he really didn't follow what his predecessor was following. And it's likely at this stage that... Daniel and the others were going through a very, very hard time. And at that special time and place, God gave them this dream. He says, In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of the great sea, with strong winds blowing from every direction, and then four huge beasts came out of the water, each from different, uh, different from the others, the first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings and as I watched its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being and it was given a human mind. And that's how it begins and that's how it continues and it's weird. It's kind of colourful, weird, dreamy weird and what's more, his dream is actually quite scary. 
four scary monsters and some are much more scary and violent than the others. They've got beasts that look like they're out of a horror movie. The last one's got ten horns and then three get ripped off and then one of the little ones pops up and he's a really, really nasty piece of work. And then this old guy on this throne that looks like it's on fire, he judges them all and then their authority is removed or reduced and then a special man turns up, this special human, and he's given authority by the old man on the fiery throne and this special man rules forever. That's kind of Daniel 7 in a nutshell. And it's a weird dream. It's vivid. It's weird. It's got weird numbers and it's got weird animals with lots of heads and stuff like that and, and people who are particular colours, like very white and all those. What do all these things mean? Well, it seems that God often uses this kind of way of communicating when things are particularly hard for his people. When people are particularly persecuted under the hands of evil rulers. That's exactly what it was like for Daniel at this particular point in time. It's exactly what it was like for God's people about 50 years after Jesus rose and was ascended. And it was also the case just before Jesus' death as well. At, this, at these particular times, God gave a special kind of language called apocalyptic writing. It's what we see in the book of Revelation. That's the very last book of the Bible and it's got all this weird imagery of numbers and weird animals and weird stuff happening and, and beasts and things like that. It's actually very similar to what we're going to be seeing this morning and, and that is because it's the same kind of writing. It's apocalyptic writing. It's also the kind of writing we saw in Matthew chapter 24 when we were doing that series. All this stuff in the last days before Jesus' death in Mark 13, it's other places as well. It's kind of in a bit of a code and it's a bit of an in-house thing so that those who are under the pump have been given this special word by God that they will get that maybe others won't get and that's, that's significant. Some people try and work out every single letter and word to work out what it means. I don't think that's the way that apocalyptic's trying to work either. We shouldn't necessarily match it all up and say it's that time in history and although there will be times when that does apply. With all that in mind, let's jump in and have a closer look. Verse 2, back then again, it says, In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. It's a storm on a big sea, uh, I quite like the ocean. I like being in a boat. I like surfing. I like swimming in the ocean. I like going and seeing it. But when you were in landlocked Israel, the idea of the ocean was that it was a place of evil, of fear. And so when we see here that the water's there and the, the beast's coming out, you're thinking, that's scary, scary stuff. This sea was essentially a place of fear. And we can see why it's a place of fear, because have a look at these beasts. The first one, verse 4, was like a lion with eagle's wings. I read this out before, but I'll read it again. A lion with eagle's wings. Its wings were pulled off, was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being, and it was given a human mind. So it's a lion with wings, or it doesn't anymore, and it's got this 
human touch to it. Second beast. I looked and saw a second beast and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Uh, this bear this is a lot more scary than the first one. Not like a human at all. And he's eating people. And it's terrifying. The third one. The third of these strange beasts appeared and it looked like a leopard. It had four birds' wings on its back and had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Uh, it's a leopard, wings, four... Why would you have four heads? Well, it's kind of like four points of authority, maybe four different rulers or something, but it's, it's a, if you drew it, you'd say, that's a pretty weird-looking thing. Can you see it's trying to communicate something in this vivid dream? Then you've got the last one. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth, and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. This one, it's a lot scarier. It's very violent, and it crushes its victims, and it had ten horns. What do you reckon a horn stands for? I think it's sort of a, a picture of power. Normally, animals have two horns, or, but this one has ten. And, well, then a, an eleventh one comes, verse 8, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. And this little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. <laughs> it's a very weird dream. Uh, it's sort of the kind of thing that would wake you up in the middle of the night because you've got four terrifying and, ter and threatening beasts and this little one this little tiny one, it's the most horrible of the lot, the little horn. But then suddenly things change very significantly. We read in the first half of verse 9 that I watched as thrones were put in place and the Ancient One sat down to judge. We've now got this old person, this Ancient One, or as he's been usually known, the Ancient of Days. Uh, it's a kind of a Hebrew way of saying things, you know, the ancient of days means old of days, like just really, really, really old guy. Uh, the ancient of days is there. We know of him because of other bits of the Bible and a number of the songs we sing, of course. And he sits down to judge. He's going to judge all of these horrible beasts that have been so violent. But what does he look like? Verse 9b, his clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He's completely white. Why does that matter? Well, that's another one of those apocalyptic kind of things. White means pure. And that's indeed what this Ancient of Days is like. And we see that he's sitting on a throne, but not any throne. He sat on a fiery throne, verse 9c, with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was, was pouring out flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session and the books were opened. In the midst of all these terrifying beasts, we get this 
old guy on the throne that's sort of got like fireworks, sort of, you know, sort of fire and everything and a fire going out and, and around him are millions and millions and millions of angels. It's an extraordinary picture. And it's time now for the Ancient of Days to judge. But even as he does that, they, these beasts don't seem to fully acknowledge him. We read that I continue to watch because I can hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a while longer. Things have changed from the beasts. They were so powerful and so terrifying and so violent, but the most recent one's destroyed. And the other three, well, they've had their batteries taken out. It's a huge turnaround. Evil's destroyed, power's removed. And what was a dream of, of, of fear is now a dream of, of hope. And then someone new arrives on the scene. Verse 13, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Someone like a son of man. What does that mean? Well, it means he's a human. If you're a man, then you're a son of a man, means that you're a man, a human. That's really what it's saying. And this son of man, this, this male human, arrives in a very spectacular way. He arrives on heaven's clouds with triumph. And he walks up to the old guy, the powerful, white-coloured old guy on the fiery throne. And what does the powerful judge on the throne, the Ancient of Days, do? Well, verse 14 says that he was given, the Son of Man was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This Son of Man, this human, is given absolute authority over everyone and everything Ultimately, everyone will obey him. And it'll happen forever and ever and ever, amen. Unlike those four beasts who came and went and came and went and had their moment and then... This guy is going to rule forever. And it's a wonderful end to what was a terrifying dream. But Daniel's still scared. Verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I'd seen and my visions terrified me. You see, in his terror, as he's still experiencing his dream, uh, he, he is having this response that, that it is a fear. And I suspect he wants to know what it all means. And so in a bit of a kind of, you know, uh, a weird dream inside a dream sort of thing, he goes up and speaks to the creature in the dream, sort of an inception kind of moment. He says, so I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him, what's it all mean? And he explained it to me like this. These four beasts, they re represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, 
the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. So within his dream, he's given the meaning of the dream. And the meaning is that each of those four beasts actually stand for kingdoms. And each of those four different kingdoms obviously have their time in the sun. And then it stops. And ultimately, God wins. And so do we. And we'll hear a bit more about that in a moment. And even with that great news, Daniel is still not at ease. Verse 19, he says, I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying, devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling their remains beneath its feet. Um, And he also, we read in verse 20, he wanted to know about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterwards and destroyed the three of the other horns. This horn had seemed greater than the others and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them. This little horn in particular seemed to be focused on killing God's people. That's his passion in life. He is the worst of the worst and he seems to be winning. You can see why Daniel is pretty terrified by his dream. As should we be as we see the horror of this little horn. But the word until comes. Until. Until the ancient one, the ancient of days, the most high, came and judged in favour of his holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. You see, we have there a a picture of the ancient of days, God himself intervening. The days of that little horn are over. But who is this beast? It's a good question. And Daniel had that question. And the answer that was given to him was, in the dream, he said, this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth. It'll be different from all the others. It'll devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. It's ten horns of ten kings who will rule that that empire. And then another king will arise, different from the other ten, who will subdue three of them. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws and they'll be placed under his control for a time, times and half a time. It goes into a fair bit of detail. Can you see that? And so it's almost worthwhile for us to reflect and see whether or not it's talking about a particular person in history. Scholars reckon that it actually may well be a Greek ruler called Antiochus IV, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, He lived about 200 years before Jesus. And his persecution of God's people in that 2nd century BC was horrific. In so many ways, this 10th king tried to act like God. He wanted to be there. He wanted to change the times. Like He did that by wanting to change the calendar from a a calendar that was a a solar calendar to a, to a, 
a lunar calendar. He did all these different kinds of things to try and come in and act like God. And in particular, he really smashed the Jews very, very hard. But it was only going to happen for time, times and half a time. This evil has a use-by date. Even though it was a long time, time, times and half a time, it was a limited time. For that time, it felt God was not in control and his people were headed for obliteration. But no, they were not headed for obliteration. The time would come when it would come to a close. Well, verse 26 says, Then the court will pass judgment and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. And then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever and all rulers will serve and obey him. The power of these evil rulers will come to an end. The power of evil would come to an end. And the power would be given to God's saints, God's holy people. And the reign of the kingdom would be forever and ever and ever. And that's how the dream ends. The last verse says, that was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts and my face was pale with fear, but I kept these things to myself. And that's how the dream ends. And so does the chapter. How does Daniel feel at the end of that? Fear. You think, why is that the case? When I got to that and I was preparing this, I thought, shouldn't he say, and though it was a pretty scary dream, I woke up refreshed knowing that God's in control. That's kind of how I do it. But I'm not Daniel and I'm not God. Daniel was terrified still. Why? Well, maybe it's because he knows that where he sits in history, it's talking about something that is to come. That that. The beasts that he may have even recognised in the, in the first beast, perhaps. The kingdom that he was in at the time, perhaps. But he knew that the future was coming and there was going to be a limited amount of time where evil would reign, but that it was still going to reign. And it was going to be horrible. And it was going to go from horrible to more horrible. Daniel was not expecting in his lifetime to see this victory over evil. And until that time came, there would still be pain and suffering. And of course that would bring him fear and terror. But we live in a different era than Daniel. We live in a different time of history. Some of the things that Daniel looked forward to are the things that are in our past. And we see that in the reference to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. As, verse 13, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Does that phrase son of man sound familiar to you? I'm sure it does. Because it was Jesus' favourite way of describing himself. Jesus often spoke of himself as the son of man. I sat down at my computer, did a little bit of a search and found in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus used the expression 30 times. 
The Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Chapter 20. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I take it that Jesus has had a bit to do with the Old Testament at his time. <laughs> he knew Daniel 7. He knew Daniel 7 was talking about him. He was the Son of Man. He is the human who approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence, as we saw in verse 13. And he's the human who, verse 14, was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. What did Jesus say as he was about to be raised up into heaven? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What was he doing? He was quoting Daniel 7. He knew that that moment has happened. The thing that Daniel looked forward to is in fact what we can look back to as we see the triumph of the cross, the victory over Satan. And as Jesus rose from the dead, the empty tomb gives us the very hope that Daniel craved. Daniel didn't know who the Son of Man was, but we do. And what Daniel dreamt of is what we have seen come true in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But why is it that in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than in all of history combined? How could that happen all these years after the coming of the Son of Man? See, we live in a time of a now but not yet fulfilment of that prophecy. It has happened, but we don't fully experience it just yet until Jesus returns again. Because like Daniel, we continue to experience persecution. Some brothers and sisters, far, 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 far more. In fact, even after Jesus had died and risen and ascended and had sent his spirit, there was persecution that continued. A great persecution sprang out and one particular man stood up in that. His name was Stephen. Chapter 7 of Acts talks about him standing boldly before those Jewish leaders that hated his message. And he stood there and we read at the end of chapter 7 of Acts that the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And what did he say? He says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Stephen saw the Son of Man in heaven. And no sooner had he said those words that the stones started flying towards him. Soon after he would lose consciousness. Soon after that he would lose his life. What was prophesied by Daniel has come true after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. 
but persecution still happens. We still wait for the time when we will experience the fullness of the victory of Jesus. And that won't happen until he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, as we said this morning in the Nicene Creed. Because his kingdom will have no end. But in the meantime, we who are friends with Jesus don't sit back passively because we rule with Christ because we're united with him. In verse 14 of chapter 7, it talks about how the Son of Man will have all that authority and will rule. And then a few verses later in verse 27, it talks about how all God's people will have that authority and will rule. How does that happen? It's because we who are united with Christ rule with Christ. And eventually there will be a time when our promised rule with Christ will be experienced in full. But in the meantime, we wait. I don't know how you feel about that. Are you a bit more on the Daniel's end of the scale where you think, oh, it's still happening. There's still fear. There's still sadness. Or are you on another end of the spectrum where you kind of think, well, you know, Jesus has conquered the grave, super saviour to the rescue. And even though things are hard, we live in hope. Well, I don't think it needs to be an either or. Because that is the Christian life. People in this room are going through really hard things at the moment. Trials and tribulations. Bad news. Sad news. Painful relationships. Persecution. Because you follow Jesus and people don't think that you're doing a smart thing. You stand with the manly seven. I mean, persecution is there even in Sydney, Australia, in different ways. But it's pretty lame compared to other parts of the world. No matter what you are going through, your sufferings are real. And God speaks to them. Because Jesus rules really. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. And no matter where you're at or what you're going through, you can have hope for the future. And that is the well-being that matters the most. We're going to sing one of those Ancient of Days songs. It's not the, uh, the old Ancient of Days one. It's a newer one by City of Light that we've been singing over the last year or two. And I think it just sums up so beautifully what we have experience together in God's word. Would you please stand as we sing?